Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord which engages us comes from our Romans lesson from Paul read earlier. You may be seated. Many of you are already aware that uh, last month my wife and I were blessed to be able to go on an archaeological dig in Israel, sponsored by the University of Haifa in Israel. We were at Hippos on the Sea of Galilee. As part of the dig, we were also able to tour around Israel and to see places like Capernaum and Caesarea Philippi and the Dead Sea and En Gedi and Qumran. Before, for me, all of these places had been words on a page or two-dimensional pictures in a book, but now then they seem more real, more tangible to me. The Apostles' Creed, if you will, has become more incarnate for me. And the biggest treat that we had during our two and a half weeks there were the three days that we spent in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. When we first arrived there, our excellent guide and archaeological director, Dr. Mark Schuler of Concordia St. Paul, he wanted us to experience the places that Jesus was tried, convicted, his walk to, the, to, the, to Golgotha, the place where he died, the place where he was buried, the place where he rose again. We went first outside the Joppa Gate, south down the old city wall. There, Dr. Schuler explained to us that an archaeologist that he highly respected had recently made a strong argument that some steps right there were actually first century steps that he believed led up to the place where Pilate met Jesus where Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders brought Jesus in order to have him tried and convicted. There, one of our other supervisors, Daryl, read the trial story from Matthew 27, including these words. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him! And Pilate saw that he was not accomplishing anything, but rather that a riot was starting. So he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the people all said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Our group of about 20 of us wandered around that site for 15 or 20 minutes, pondering and praying what Jesus had done for us in that place. Nearly all of the platform itself was gone, but Dr. Schuler told us that there was one outcropping about two feet wide connected to the old city wall that they believed was probably still the original platform area where Jesus had stood before Pilate. After a few minutes, I went up there and stood on that platform myself, again, pondering what my Lord has done for us, for me. There, below us in the grass, was a great irony. You see, there was a group of 13, 14-year-old boys, about as far away as Chaplain Stein is from us, from me right now, and they were playing soccer kind of drifting on back about the distance of the back of the chapel. These 13, 14-year-old boys were all wearing their yarmulkes, 
their Jewish skull caps. If they had been curious, the closest of them were probably able to be an earshot of the words from the gospel reading that Daryl had shared with us earlier. The irony of what we had just read in their presence made my stomach a little queasy. His blood shall be upon us and on our children. Here I was, standing in the land of Israel, nearly a hundred generations after Paul wrote these words of Romans chapter 9, feeling sorrow that so many of Abraham's genetic descendants were still not turning to the Messiah who had come and given his life for them, had been tried in their place right there in that spot. Paul's passion that he shows in this text for his countrymen has always amazed me. By this time in history, Paul had been persecuted again and again and again by Jewish leaders throughout Asia Minor, throughout Greece. They had thrown him out of the synagogues, they had stoned him, they had beat him, they had imprisoned him simply for proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. I got to walk around Caesarea Maritima on the, on the Mediterranean Sea, the place where Paul was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel for more than two years. To be honest, if I had been Paul, I would have been highly tempted to despise the people who had been persecuting me like that. Don't we sometimes still struggle to have the passion and the compassion to share evangelism work among those who are not even persecuting us, let alone those who are persecuting us. We tend to think of evangelism as a program to be followed rather than as something that flows out of us for the sake of the compassion that Jesus has shown for us. Yet Paul still had so much love and so much compassion for his fellow kinsmen that he was willing to have himself cut off from Christ accursed. I felt a little bit queasy in my stomach because of these teenage boys, but Paul felt great sorrow and unceasing anguish and was willing to see himself cut off and accursed for the sake of his kinsmen. Luther helps us capture some of Paul's compassion in his lecture to the Romans, or in his lecture on Romans in chapter 9, where Luther says, from this text, it is very clear that love is found not only in sweetness and delight, but also in the greatest sorrow and bitterness. Indeed, it rejoices and delights in bitterness and sorrow because it regards the misery and suffering of others as if they were its own. Thus Christ, even in the final and worst hour of his suffering, was aglow with his deepest love. Indeed, according to blessed Hilary, it filled him with the greatest joy to suffer the greatest pain. For thus it is that, according to Psalm 68, God is wonderful in his saints, so that he causes them, at the very time they are suffering the greatest pains, also to experience the greatest joys." Close quotes. God's plan was not to cut off Paul for the sake of Israel. His plan, his way of salvation, the way of rescue for that generation of Jews and for 20 generations of Jews and, excuse me, 100 generations of Jews and Gentiles since then 
is to trust in Jesus Christ and in his promises alone. Paul was to preach the promises of Christ. His compassion for his people led him to continue preaching even when he was imprisoned and persecuted. And we read later in the book of Romans that he was planning to go to Jerusalem. And there we know how he was persecuted and imprisoned. Paul's Savior commissioned him to preach the gospel, and that is what he did. The Word of God has not failed. Following after Paul have come literally millions of other preachers of this same gospel sent out into the world today. Around the world, more than 25 million new believers in Christ are brought to the faith in those promises every year. More than a billion believers continue to hear those promises and to respond to them in faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, Paul says. That word of Christ is being preached and taught and heard and believed here and around the world because the Holy Spirit produces faith where and when he wills it to those who hear the gospel. It is daunting and humbling to me to consider that our Lord in his eternal plan is actually using the words that I'm preaching here today to hopefully in some small way build up your faith in the promises of our Lord, you, his listening children. I hope it is equally daunting to all of you that the Lord will be using, has used and will be using your words that you preach and teach in your fieldwork congregations, your vicarage and internship sites, and even into, especially into those congregations that call you into his service. Those words will be used to strengthen the faith of those who are already believers and to call new believers to Jesus Christ as well. I am convinced that the word of God has not failed, even in Israel today. While the Jewish, while the Israeli government and various Jewish groups worked very hard to mute Christian evangelism in that place, on the other hand, you can't throw a rock, and believe me, there are lots of rocks there. You cannot throw a rock without hitting some Christian site, some site commemorating Jesus or one of his disciples or the Byzantine Christians who populated that region for centuries. Christian tourists and pilgrims are super abundant in the region. And the story of Jesus is known, at least partially, to even the non-believers that were there. One afternoon, a smaller group of us took a bus tour up to Caesarea Philippi, the place where, in Matthew 16, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Dr. Schuler was busy doing some paperwork for the archaeological dig, so he opted not to go with us. So it was a busload of about half Christians and half Jewish people from the University of Haifa volunteers that went up to see this. We were led by a young secular Jewish archaeology professor named Mikkel. Mikkel showed us the ruins of the Roman Temple of Pan and showed us the foundations of uh, Herod Agrippa's palace that were built there. But he also told our busload that Caesarea Philippi was the region where Jesus gave the kingdom, in his words, gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter. 
Mikkel, while not a believer in Christ, had had the message of Jesus come all the way to him. His, he knew the history. I pray and hope that the message of Christ will continue to be preached among us, but also to Mikhail and to all of those volunteers at the University of Haifa and to those Jewish boys that were playing soccer right there at the place where Pilate found Jesus guilty of our sins. And for all those who already know Jesus as their Savior, for all those who still as yet do not know him and are not yet trusting in his promises, that, the, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who gave himself for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We continue with the Kyrie.